we're in our, uh, the final week of this kind of all summer long journey that we've had uh, talking about what it means to be a culture creator <clears throat> in the spirit and way of Jesus. And so the way that we've done that is we've looked at all these different things saying we have an opportunity to create culture, to make something, to develop something here at LifePath and in the world around us at, at large um, instead of just responding to the world. Instead of just reacting to things, um, instead of just like interacting, we have an opportunity to actually create a way of being and a way of living that, that comes out of the, the nature of Jesus. And so for weeks, we've been looking at different people in the scriptures, different stories, <clears throat> and, uh, and you know, what does it mean to create a culture of rest, to create a culture of play even, to create a culture of initiating and taking first steps, create a culture of finding the good around us, all sorts of other things. And so, uh, so we're going to kind of conclude that before we, we shift next week to something, something new. But uh, you know how, and I don't know if you'll, if you'll understand this, but I, I expect you will. You know how if you've grown up in the church, in a church culture, whatever that looks like for you, sometimes you'll be talking with somebody and your faith may come up and you use words and language and phrases that you think are totally normal and then someone looks at you like, what, are, what does that even mean? Or what language are you speaking? You, you, have you noticed this? And if you didn't grow up in the church, this is even more noticeable. If you didn't grow up in a, in a Christian subculture of any sort, and you hear someone talking about little figures of speech and stuff that's pretty normal in Christian language, and you look at them and you say, what do you even mean by that? What is, does that, does that even make sense? These, these little phrases, you know, like, um, like I just had to give that to Jesus. There's a phrase. Can you imagine somebody outside of, of like Christian faith having no idea what that means? Like, do you have like a, a cardboard box, you know, in your, in the corner of your home of like things that, and, and just like Jesus' name scribbled on there to drop off eventually one day, like it's a, like it's a goodwill. Like, what does it mean to give something to Jesus anyways, even if people understand it? Like, what's that mean? Like, I, I just, I'm, I'm concerned about this. I need to give it to Jesus. But what physically does that even look like? What changes in you? How does this process? We have a way of talking about things that, um, that actually are beautiful, deep spiritual metaphors, but not always helping people know what it looks like in the real world. And so today, uh, I want to talk about what it looks like to live out together a culture of surrender. But to talk about a culture of surrender surrendering things to God, surrendering our lives to God, giving our lives to Jesus, that doesn't make sense until you understand what it physically might look like, what it looks like with, with, with teeth, instead of just a nice spiritual metaphor. We know that everything starts with the heart, no question. We know that everything starts with the heart. But what happens after the heart gets changed? What are the physical changes that we live and do, the things that we do, that say, yes, I am moving toward a life that is surrendered to God's heart or purposes? And so there is one more person in the scriptures that I think is uh, going to help us kind of work through some of this a little bit. And, uh, and he is possibly the most underrated um, person in the scriptures, except for Jesus, because I think the world underrates Jesus quite a bit. Uh, but outside of Jesus... Uh, and and I, I always talk about this because I just want to know so, much, so many more stories. But his name's John the Baptist. 
And I'm sure that you've heard of him if you've been around the church too long. But John the Baptist is this incredible character in the scriptures that is the forerunner to Jesus, okay? So after the book of Malachi, which is kind of the final prophetic word, there's what's called the 400 years of silence. So centuries pass without any prophetic words in the scriptures. There's just this this time of waiting, okay? And things kind of grow cold, and people aren't sure what to expect. And then we start to get these stories, right, at the beginning of our Gospels. And, and the stories begin to talk uh, originally um, about, before they even begin to talk about Jesus, except for John, because John loves, not John the Baptist, John the Gospel writer, because he goes right to Jesus. But then he comes back to John the Baptist, because this guy is so important. So anyways, I'm not going to give you the whole story of him, because he is a cousin of Jesus. His birth story is also miraculous and significant, uh, but we're not going to focus on that. We're going to focus on what happened when this guy was an adult, all right? And so, so and, and we're going to look at John the Baptist through the lens of asking, in all seriousness, what does a life of surrender to God look like? All right, what exactly are we going to be surrendering, or at least what are some of the things that we're going to be surrendering if we live a life of discipleship toward God? So, here's what we learn about, about uh, John the Baptist. So, so, this is the Gospel of John, different John, uh, same spirit, but different John. There was a man sent by God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, that's Jesus, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. So there's a bit of a mission statement, at least according to John's gospel. This is what the purpose of this guy named John the Baptizer, which we call John the Baptist, whatever, he came as a witness to testify concerning the light. Okay, uh, here's how Matthew, here's how Matthew describes what he did in more, in less flowery language. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So John's message was, turn, the kingdom of heaven is is coming, okay? Repent is turn in a new direction, leave this life. And And he really called people on specifically the mistreatment of others and the oppression of others and a lack of integrity and care and compassion. Uh, So, so he, he's, he gives this kind of harsh calling. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So, this, this, is, this is kind of the, uh, the, the purpose that John came. But how did John come? Let's look at this. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the name, or by him in the Jordan River. Now, this is not the same baptism that Jesus brought. Um, This was a baptism of, uh, well, at least not the baptism that the early church began to practice. This was about um, preparation for God's coming, okay? But anyways, let's just take a look at a guy who whose clothes were made of camel's hair and had a leather belt around his waist. When we think about the past, you, you know how we, we don't really think about how things truly changed. If it's old, it's old. If it's a couple thousand years or a couple hundred years old, that's just old. We don't think about how cultures and fashions changed over time. But I want you to picture this guy, this guy who, who is seen as wearing camel's hair, leather belt, and eating locusts and wild honey, which was odd at the time. 
We need to understand this, otherwise they wouldn't have highlighted it. And we need to ask the question, why were so many people flocking to a guy that dressed oddly? Like, what's, what's the whole deal here? And, and, and also, we learned some other information, but uh, you want to know why? You want to know why people were so drawn to him? This, this fiery guy calling out for, for turning because the kingdom of God is near, dressed in all kinds of crazy stuff. Do you know why? Because guess what? There's a little passage in 2 Kings that is helpful to understanding what his clothes would have reminded people of. In 2 Kings, the king asked him, what kind of a man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, he had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. The king said, that's Elijah. He was wearing the sports jersey of Elijah, John the Baptist. All right, so he comes out and he starts proclaiming and everybody sees a guy that nobody has been talking about, no one certainly has heard from in 900 years, okay? So, so culture changes over time. We don't think that at the time of Jesus, they were thinking about those old kind of people that dressed savagely or whatever the case is, right? We, we think about them as like, you guys didn't even have closed-toed shoes, <laughs> Some things haven't changed that much. Um, but, uh, but, but so the point is, John's strangeness had a purpose. By, by hearkening back people to who Elijah was, to a memory of Elijah, the bigger thing there was the spirit that Elijah had. Elijah was, was known to have this fiery spirit of, of faithfulness and love to God, of representing God, of calling out, of, of being noticed as a representative to call people back toward God, okay? And so here's, here's what I think is really, really interesting about this, this story. By the way, I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, but, uh, but here's what I think we need to know. John the Baptist is intentionally not normal because God has called him to carry a unique message. And he is clearly unafraid of this uniqueness, Okay? He is unafraid of being eccentric. Sometimes, when we think about a life of being surrendered to Jesus, I think sometimes we have to start when we say, okay, Jesus, I want to follow you. I truly want to trust you. One of the first things that has to happen is we have to start being okay with being a little odd in this world. We have to start being okay with not matching what everybody else looks like and doing things the way everybody else does. Because what we love to do is we love to just take, like, a, like put a Christian stamp on our Americanism and just not change at all. And our lives don't look that much more like Jesus except we use the word Christian or, or something a little bit more often. But the values by which we live, the way that we spend our money, the way that we treat our enemies, the way that we handle conflict, the way that we handle friendship, hasn't actually shifted. And, and so, so one of the first things that a life of surrender actually looks like is, is um, a willingness to, uh, to what I'm going to say, um, to surrender our conformity. You know, the book of, uh, book of Romans talks about not conforming to the patterns of this world, but being transformed by the work that Jesus is doing in our heads, in our minds. It starts there, and then we, then we live differently. And so one of the first things that we see in John the Baptist is John, John had a, a life of just surrendering the need to be like everybody else because he had a unique calling. And when we learn to dive into that, 
Not just the fact that sometimes you need to be a little odd to get people's attention. And I have experienced living a little oddly to get people's attention. This was back in my days of a youth pastor uh, when, I, when I led a group of about 100 high school kids. And, uh, and one of the nights, I remember, we had had some visitors from friends of kids in the school that didn't dress like a lot of the other kids. And there was a lot of like aloofness that our kids were just unwilling to, to go in and, and treat them normal. So I dressed up in a very similar way, which was, I guess it was called gothic at the time. Um, and I gave a, a, a Thursday night message looking like that, which I think I need to get that off the screen. <laughs> um, but uh, so, so anyways, I... I've experienced kind of the fun of what it, what it looks like and is to be eccentric, but the whole point that I was trying to teach the kids was, hey, it, it doesn't change the core of who you are, how you appear from the outside, right? You might look like that, or you might look like um, all kind of put together and really nicely dressed or whatever, and we can look and we can, we can decide that someone either fits in or they don't fit in or anything like this, but that's not the point anyways. The point is that the things that should actually make us a little eccentric have nothing to do with our appearances and everything to do with our actions of love, everything to do with the way that we reflect God's kingdom and heart in our day-to-day moments. And there are, there are so many opportunities the real point of a life of, surrender to the Christ, to a life of surrendering to Christ is that you've been set free from a world that suggests success and effectiveness and contentment all work through very specific roadmaps, right? Involving money, involving comfort, involving influence. But Jesus says that with him, being with him, living in his will, loving God and neighbor, experiencing God's grace, all of these things, that's what leads to the good life regardless of all of the other things. You don't have to conform to the way the world works. You simply have to seek out where Jesus is leading you and what Jesus is leading you to do. And in your own ways of doing that, your life won't look normal, but it's okay. It's the most freeing you could ever be. And and so the great thing is that you'll, you'll be able to kind of joyfully surrender your conformity, and it won't feel like quite that much of a sacrifice because you'll be able to begin living in peace in who God made you to be and in the things that God called you to be, even in difficult times. So the bigger point is not John's eccentricity in appearance nearly as much as his calling to be different in the world and to bring people back and people's attention back to what mattered to God, God's kingdom, not theirs, and to turn toward it. And he was super intense about it, by the way. Um, now, here's, here's how the story continues on. He meets, he recognizes Jesus, um, which is really interesting. He recognizes Jesus, which brings up all sorts of fascinating questions, like did he really understand that Jesus was the Messiah when they were cousins growing up, um, or was it something that was revealed to him kind of as, as it went on? But, uh, but here's, here's the interesting thing. So, he, John the Baptist is a big deal. He is the biggest thing since the last prophet, and it's been 400 years, so think about that. He's got this prophetic voice, people are flocking to him, they're listening, he's powerful, he's not doing miracles, which is really interesting because he must have been, he must have had an incredible message, because most of the time people were flocking to those who were doing miraculous things, but not John. John didn't do any miracles, but he had a message of of repentance that God's kingdom was coming and it captured people. So they came in droves, and he was seen as the most powerful all over the place. And then Jesus came, 
And he recognized Jesus, but not too many other people quite get what that's all about. And then Jesus starts, people start going to Jesus to actually get baptized. And Jesus and his disciples are starting to do this on the other side of the river than where John's whole thing started up. And it brings up some really interesting emotions, okay? So, So here's what happens next. So some of John's disciples come to him and they say, hey, that man that was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one that you testified about, look, he's baptizing. Everyone's going to him. I just imagine, remember, disciples are young. Disciples are young. So these, these would have been, you know, possibly 14, 15, 16, 17-year-olds who are really excited about being John the Baptist's disciples. And, and they say, hey, what's going on, Jesus? Or what's going on, John? All, all of our people, all of our crowds are beginning to shift. <laughs> They're not real happy about it. And, and to this, John replied, a person can only receive what's given to them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah. People clearly wanted John or thought John might have been the one to come. And he said, listen, I've told you this before. I'm not the Messiah, but I was sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom, right? He said, I'm a part of the bridal party here. This is not bad news, friends. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and now it's complete. And then he says the phrase, He must become greater, I must become less. A very well-known, famous, famous phrase. He must become greater, I must become less. The message here is really simple. It's not about you. And John, John, as a life, as a person whose life was surrendered to God, John just inherently understood, this is not about me. The, the ego, so, so really what we're talking about here is uh, we're talking about surrendering our ego, right? A life of surrender to Jesus requires that we're not, that we're unafraid to be a little different, but also that we acknowledge the power of our ego and are willing to release it, willing to give it up. This, this is such a hard thing because it requires never-ending work, right? I mean, those of you who have done work to acknowledge the role that your own ego plays in life, and in your relationships, it is like ongoing. There's never a time where you're like, yeah, I have truly gotten this under, well, maybe for you, I'll say it, not for me. I've never hit that point yet, hopefully one day. Um, I, I, I really fight, personally, the desire for other people to, to know when I've done something good. I wanna make sure I'm, I'm making a difference. I wanna know that I'm making a difference. And so I, I kinda want people to affirm, yeah, you're, you're doing something good, Keith, you know? Like, I, I, I really want to feel like I'm something. The problem is the way that we seek out feeling like we're something is the wrong way, because I am something and so are you. But it's because of the worth that God has given us, independent of what we accomplish or how impressive we are in all of these other markings. So it can be hard to surrender our own ego to Jesus and remembering that it's not about us doing enough, it's not about earning applause, it's not about affirmation or whatever. It's about being okay with being less important. Being okay with, uh, you know, the way Jesus talks about it is denying ourselves. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to speak just a little, a little uh, quick uh, rabbit trail here. Because laying down our lives and, and surrendering our ego and all that, that is absolutely crucial for 
with, without question, to the gospel, right? But for some of you, this brings up really uncomfortable feelings, and it's not simply because self-sacrifice is hard. It's because, unfortunately, this teaching has sometimes been distorted in a way that suggests you're supposed to lose your sense of self completely. That, that he must become greater, I must become less, means that who Keith is as a unique person is supposed to kind of become like like flattened, like a, like a topographic map that you just push everything down until it's all smooth and say, yes, everyone now looks exactly like Jesus. Here's the thing. When you look like Jesus, it's going to look different than when I look like Jesus. So to say that God must become greater in my life and I must become less, it means that my ego is no longer driving things. It does not mean that I lose my unique sense of, of the self that God made. It doesn't mean that I do things that are unhealthy for my own growth and development or, or my own my own actual needs in the world, because we have real needs that should be acknowledged, that should be talked about, needs for love and care. You know, to say that God must become greater and I must become less is not necessarily a requirement to become an ascetic, right? To, to become someone who just suffers for the sake of suffering. That's not what this is about, nor is it about um, defining life in Christ as your uniqueness no longer matters. So, that's, that's really, really, really crucial. To surrender our ego is to say the things within us that seek advancement and independence from God's heart. Those are the things that get chipped away. Um, the more that we become like Jesus, actually, the more we become our truest selves. You ready? I'll, let me give you a trippy, a trippy uh, quote that I think is fabulous from H.A. Williams. Here's what he says. There is within me a me that is both greater than me and at the same time authentically myself. Just stay with me here. One way of approaching this mysterious fact would be by what's called the paradox of grace. The more God gives me his grace, himself, right? The more of God that we experience, the more I am myself. The more I am my truest self is what he's saying, right? The more I discover within me the greater than me, the more I discover that the greater than me is the authentic, is authentically me. The more that we discover who Jesus made us to be, the more our lives line up in surrendering to Jesus, the more we get a sense of who we actually are. And it's a paradox because it's less about us, but all of a sudden it's more who we honestly are. And there's beauty to that. So we surrender our conformity, we surrender our ego. All right, and then this one's, this one's kind of, kind of fun. Um, all right, so here's what ends up happening in this story of John the Baptist, all right? Um, first of all, I, I just need you to hear the spirit of John the Baptist because here's something that we never talk about. So here's, here's more of the message of John. I baptize you with water for repentance, he's announcing, but after me, just listen to this imagery. Comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John was a bit of an intense guy. All right? Right before that, he had talked about the axe being at the base of the tree. Like, John is ready. Like, John's heart was for God, but his understanding of the kingdom was that it's going to burn. Like, he's ready, for, he's ready for the kingdom coming, and it is going to be really intense. Remember, 
Most people expected that when the kingdom came, it would look like a violent overthrow of the Romans and a, a complete turnover. It would look like a political revolution. Okay? Remember that. So here's essentially what the image of, for John's expectation of what Jesus is about to do or what the, what the Messiah is going to do. So he says his winnowing fork is in hand. He's going to burn things up. Now, he was right. He just had no idea how that was going to happen, right? Because as much as God's, John's heart was for God, there's a lot of people whose heart was for God, but they couldn't quite wrap their mind around exactly what Jesus was going to be or do. I mean, goodness, Peter spent three years with him and still had to have an extra vision to get what Jesus was trying to do. So here's what Jesus ends up doing, right? The first words of Jesus, and I'm not saying that Jesus wasn't harsh, but listen, the first words of Jesus, so John says, oh man, this guy is gonna, he's gonna cut down the wheat and burn away the chaff, right? He is going, he is gonna sort things out. And yes, that's all true, but again, the methods. So the first thing Jesus comes doing, John is an angry person, like not angry in the deepest spirit, but he was a fiery preacher. And Jesus comes and Jesus' first words are words of blessing. Blessed are the suffering, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who are mourning, because God is with you. In the book of Matthew, the Beatitudes, right? In the book of Luke, Jesus' first words are, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has given me good news to the poor, right? To give recovery of sight to the blind, to set the prisoner free, and, and he's quoting Isaiah 61 here, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then Jesus closes the scroll. The next line is, and the day of the vengeance of our God. But Jesus closes the scroll before he continues that Isaiah prophecy, because Jesus knows that his method is going to be to help people understand what God's all about. And what God's all about is saying, I'm actually on your side, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Do you understand how radically different this is? It's amazing. And so because of that, because of that, a few weeks or months or whatever pass, Jesus' ministry begins to take off. John gets imprisoned because he's this man of integrity, and he calls, he calls the king on, on a, a moral issue that's going on, and the king doesn't like it, and so the king imprisons John. Later, he'll be killed for this. But, but John sends his disciples, and what does he send his disciples to do? Do you remember? To Jesus. What do they ask? Are you the one? <laughs> and, and this is not cynicism. This is what I love about it. So, so, so John is hearing about Jesus' ministry, and it's not exactly, he still believes the vision that God gave him of who the Messiah was, but it's not exactly like crystal clear and so he sends his disciples, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are, are you the one who is to come? There's trust there. They want clarity. They're asking Jesus for a reason. Can you confirm? Because we believe that you're the truth. We've seen something. Are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? At that time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers and he's going back and he's confirming what he said in Luke 4 about his calling from Isaiah 61. Go back and report to John what you've seen. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And then he has, again, this is just what makes Jesus so profoundly incredible. And then he says this statement, blessed is anyone who doesn't fall away on account of me. Like, think about the humility of Jesus saying, 
I, I don't know. You can all interpret this how you want. But I look at this as Jesus saying, I know this is not the paradigm that you had in your mind for what the kingdom would look like when it comes. So blessed are you who continue to walk forward and trust that what I'm doing is God's heart and don't fall away because, hold on, I'm just so disappointed that this doesn't look like the revolution I was expecting. And so Jesus says this incredible statement of kind of compassion to the fact that I know this is a paradigm shift for you. But look what John was doing. He was, this was not a statement of a lack of faith when he sent them to it. He sent them to Jesus because he wanted to continue to learn, to, be, to, to clarify, to understand, all right? So, so he was willing, and I think this is so beautiful. I can find my marker. There we go. Um, he was willing to surrender to surrender his assumptions. To go back to Jesus and say, Jesus, help, keep helping me get this thing right. I love that. Keep helping me get this thing right. Because I got a vision, and I think I got some of it right, but I need some more clarity. And what happens when we live with that sort of humility, right? And, and, and by the way, Jesus called John the greatest of all humans, <laughs> the greatest of all human beings, the greatest of all born of women, he says, is John the Baptist later on when they're having this debate. So Jesus thought very, very, very highly of John. But then Jesus followed that statement by saying, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. That, that even, even, you know, the... Uh, the, the, the poor beggar on the side of the street who's welcomed into God's kingdom with a humble heart, even that is greater than this powerful man of God. Even that. So don't think that it's all about the impressiveness, but believe me, John was impressive. Jesus was highly complimentary of him, but he continued to shift the paradigm because the greatest prophet is the greatest, right? That's why John the Baptist was such a big deal. He's like Elijah. This guy should be lifted up and celebrated. And Jesus said, he is great, believe me. But in God's kingdom, even the, the, the most insignificant person has even more worth and value than that, than the big stars. So, so he was constantly shifting how people understood. And if John, let's just say this, if John, the greatest of all humans according to Jesus, didn't understand immediately and exactly how God's kingdom would look, how arrogant of us to assume that we have it figured out all the time. I'm not the greatest of all human beings. This guy was, and he still didn't have it figured out. So let's walk with a little bit of humility. Let's be people who being surrendered to Jesus means I'm constantly open to being taught new things from Jesus, to letting my paradigm be challenged, to letting the way that I see things be shaped in new ways. I, I just love, though, that Jesus understands this process and how hard it is um, for well-meaning, for, uh, yeah, for well-meaning disciples even, to get it right. He knows that some will fall because it's just hard to trust the way of Jesus. These are all a part of the journey of surrendering to Jesus. Um, but what feels like surrender at first eventually leads to profound freedom ultimately. When we try to hold on to control, try to make ourselves look and feel important, try to play the parts, all of that stuff, try to act like we know everything, we can let all of that go and simply trust Jesus over and over and over again and we will have peace we'll have purpose, we'll have freedom, and we'll have connection with others in new and beautiful ways. Which leads us to just the way that I, I want to give some practical, practical steps for when we move toward surrendering these things, 
There's no significance between the colors, by the way. I just picked up different markers. But what, what happens when the body of Christ, that is the church, when we embrace a culture of surrender? One of the first things is that um, walls will drop that keep us apart because we're doing the work of surrendering our conformity. You don't need to look like me to be a valuable, beautiful part of the kingdom. And, and it's not really about me anyways. So, so, like, we learn that some of the things that keep us apart can fall down and we can see each other for who we really are. When we're surrendered to Jesus, we become more loving and more caring uh, toward, toward one another. There will be space for each of us in our beloved, quirky, odd selves. Because each of us as we follow Jesus. I love what Dallas Willard says. Dallas Willard says, um, the correct question is not what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus do if he were you? Because each of you are unique. And so our goal to be a disciple is not to be like Jesus, it's to be like who Jesus would be if he were you. Put in your unique time and place, in your family setting, with your skills and gifts, in the country you're in, what would Jesus do then? And, and let it be unique uh, than what other people might be. Okay, second is that we'll constantly, there's just three of these, we'll constantly learn with and from each other as Jesus teaches us. Because again, we surrender our assumptions, so we trust that God will continue to teach us together. Instead of us having it figured out on our own, we trust that, that God will continue to shape us um, and, and that we can learn from one another and we can be challenged and we can continue to grow. And then finally, um, we'll be more uh, in tune with, um, with where God's calling us individually and as a community. All right? Um, this, we will, if, if, we're, if we're truly living lives that are surrendered to Jesus personally, then we'll be able to say, you know what, since I'm not focusing on my own ego or just what I want and need, I'm going to be more open to where God might be stirring in our whole community. And so, so I'm going to be willing to hear and change because I'm okay with being a nonconformist. So I'm willing to do something unique if Jesus calls me to. But I'm also willing to check my assumptions at the door and say, Jesus, keep helping to clarify this stuff. I'm also willing to learn and listen to others, and I'm not going to let my ego get in the way. Just think of what that can do for our church if we keep moving in this direction. Think about how we can discern where the Spirit might be leading us to be a church now, a church that doesn't have to play by all the rules of what churches should do and be and look like all the time. If our church is not about us, but truly about God's heart and about loving our community. If our church says we don't have it all figured out, we'll continue to learn from Jesus and takes that posture. Such beautiful things could happen. All right, so here um, we're not going to do, uh, because of our, we had a lot of elements in our gathering today, so we're not going to um, do Q&A time that we do sometimes, but here are the questions for you to reflect with your family or yourself or um, friends, any discipleship partners. You know, which of these areas of surrender, like conformity or ego or assumptions, do you think hold the greatest challenges? For you, maybe personally, which ones are the toughest ones to, to give up, to release um, to God? Do you feel the need to look, to, to, to not be the odd person out, so it's hard to take steps of faith if that makes you different from others? Whatever. What beauty or joy have you experienced when you are surrendered to God's heart? Because it is an incredibly beautiful thing to walk trusting Jesus into new areas. And then maybe just what else stirs as you listen to this stuff. So, so take a moment to just, um, to just sit with that, okay, and to just be, be at peace, all right? Um, and then, uh, yeah, and 
And uh, as we do that, we trust that Jesus is going to lead us. So let's, let's close this time in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we know that it's really hard uh, to let things go. We, we kind of want to hold on to control, even though we know that it's a myth anyways. Uh, but I, I pray that you'd help us hold our lives not tight-fisted, but with open hands, trusting our moments to you. Just right now even, Lord, help us to, to go through a step toward deeper surrender, whatever that looks like. To say, Jesus, I want to trust you, your way, your, your, your hope of eternal life and your forgiveness, but also your way of life now for the rest of my days so that I can live in that freedom and delight and community. Help us, Lord. Amen.